The Informed Fitness Podcast with Adam Zickerman and co-host Mike Rogers is a presentation of Informed Fitness Studios, a small family of personal training facilities specializing in safe, efficient, high-intensity strength training. On our bi-monthly podcast, Adam and Mike discuss the latest findings in the areas of exercise, nutrition, and recovery with leading experts and scientists. We aim to debunk the popular misconceptions and the urban myths that are so prevalent in the fields of health and fitness, and to replace those sacred cows with scientific-based, up-to-the-minute information on a variety of subjects. We'll cover exercise protocols and techniques, nutrition, sleep, recovery, the role of genetics in the response to exercise, and much more. On this episode, Adam and Mike welcome Dr. Doug McGuff, one of today's leading high-intensity experts. This is a must-listen as they discuss that there's a lot more that meets the eye when it comes to all the benefits we reap from high-intensity training. If you're still looking for some more motivation to stick to your exercise program, well, this episode is for you. If you want everything bad that can happen to a human to happen, immobilize them and overfeed them. Movement is life, and I believe that movement against resistance is life elevating. Hello, welcome to the show. Adam and Mike here. I've known today's guest, Dr. Doug McGuffin now for over 20 years. Uh, we both caught the weight training bug as young men in our teens. We're about the same age. And we've been geeking out on it ever since. He's a doctor. He's a practicing ER doctor in South Carolina. And Doug is one of those few doctors who actually happens to run his own gym. It's called Ultimate Exercise, and it's in Seneca, South Carolina. In 2008, Doug co-wrote the groundbreaking book, Body by Science, along with John Little. And let me tell you, it is required reading for all my staff, and even many of our clients. Why? Well, honestly, it was, and really is, a really important book, because it comes from a theoretical understanding of basic physiology, and for the first time, properly applies it to high-intensity exercise. I can't emphasize enough what his book has done to our industry and bringing high-intensity exercise to to the mainstream. So anyway, it's my great pleasure to introduce a guy who I really consider a mentor. Welcome to the show, Doug. Yeah, Adam, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. I just saw you uh, recently at the the conference, at the, what was it, Resistance Exercise Conference in Minnesota. Yeah. And your keynote speech was fantastic, by the way. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. You said something that really rang true with me because we, we come from similar backgrounds and experiences and the timing because we're, we're similar ages and we, we got introduced to high-intensity training, the Nautilus principles, relatively around the same time. We, we go back a few years with this high-intensity training at this point. And you, and you said that like for the last 20, 30 years that we've been lifting weights primarily to uh, get big and strong, uh, swole as they say, you know, maybe to give us an edge in sports. And if we were on an unusually perceptive day, we might have actually also thought that it might protect us from injury. But really, it was about getting big and strong. Now, we're finding out so much more that we were getting from these workouts than we ever thought. You know, the the health benefits of exercise that go beyond just getting strong, which, quite honestly, if you told me that just getting strong is all we got from strength training, 
I'd be happy with that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's why we were doing. We didn't think we were getting anything more from it. But so, Doug, this is what I want to speak to you about, uh, the health benefits of strength training beyond just getting really strong. So, Doug, the paper you uh, brought up, it was titled Muscle Should Be the New Vital Sign, something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that that's probably accurate. I mean, at least it should be you know, not on a visit by visit vital sign, but in terms of someone's health history, I think that ought to be recorded as a health parameter. Body mass index is being used a lot now, um, but that's not truly accurate. But I think if there was some sort of measure of muscle mass or strength that could be included as a vital sign, it would provide a lot of useful health information. And it's simply because skeletal muscle speaks to everything else in our body and it's a good indicator of what your overall health fashion uh, situation is going to be. It's going to be an indicator of what degree of systemic inflammation might be going on. It's a great indicator of your physiologic reserve should you become ill. Um, if you get an infection, you end up with sepsis, end up in an intensive care unit. Um, the degree of muscle mass that you're trending down from basically gives you the clock that you're racing against to get better. So. Um, it really is a pertinent vital sign, and I would agree with the premise of that article. You mentioned that recovery in ICUs have been shown. People that have higher muscle mass uh, recover better in ICU units. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, how long you have before you have to go on total parenteral nutrition in the ICU is very much related to your skeletal muscle mass, which again directly correlates with your overall organ mass that kind of starts the countdown clock because your body is going to tap into the reservoir of your skeletal muscle, not just in terms of stored glycogen uh, for energy usage, but also the amino acid pool that's within your skeletal muscle for, you know, synthesizing enzymes, nutrients, uh, generating antibodies. All of that is used as a storehouse for raw materials um, that you'll need in your fight for survival. Mm -hmm. And when you've kind of tapped that out, then you have to go on to kind of into intravenous total parenteral nutrition, which is very challenging for ICU specialists. You don't want to be there. You don't want to yeah, be at that point. It's just so easy to screw up, you know. Mm. The health benefits. I want to start talking about some of these real physiological changes that occur as a result of high intensity exercise. Mm -hmm. But before we go right into that, which is really where I want to spend most of our time, I want to do a little review of SOAR, S-O-R. Sure. Stimulus Organism Response. If you can, in, in, a, in a very succinct way, talk about that. And when we talk about exercise, we talk about the stimulus a lot, the type of exercise, the protocols yeah. that we do. I want to start getting into more of the responses down the road. Okay, sure. So, you know, everyone just needs to take a bow to Arthur Jones to kind of explain it to everyone for the very first time that your natural inclination and orientation towards exercise is that it's directly doing something that benefits you. The ab roller will firm and tighten your abs. It's like, no, 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 it's not how it works. I mean, the exercise is some sort of hormetic or threatful stimulus to the body. The body receives that, and then if it has appropriate resources and time, it will synthesize an adaptive response. But the exercise itself is just a stimulus. Your body generates the adaptive response, and that adaptive response has preconditions for it to occur. 
Um, and the adaptive response is really not just one thing. It's a myriad of things we're coming to discover. And we've always intuited that, you know, you and I both know, I mean, you remember going into a big box gym back in the eighties and you could walk through there and you had all your anemic, sickly looking people <laughs> on the treadmills. And then you had all the robust, healthy looking people that you would like to look like over in the weight section. And you kind of wondered if that was just a selection bias or if there was really something to it. And as it turns out, our instincts about that were correct. There really is something to it. There's something almost magical about exercising against meaningful resistance. Yeah. It was probably a little bit of selection bias too, because you know, I think, I think when you have, when, when you, when you, the organism that's prone to build muscle, you, you tend to yeah, gravitate you're gonna go there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the organism part. Talk about like the organism for a second where, because and expectations. Sure. And this kind of gets into my whole Pandora's box discussion that came up at the resistance exercise conference. And, you know, when you look in Greek mythology, the story of Pandora's box, they put hope at the very bottom of the box. And that was so that you would take everything else that was in the box and release it out into the world in the process of going after hope. And in the resistance training realm, the hope is actually big muscles. That's kind of what got us all into this to begin with, because the outcome of resistance training in the correct individual, in the correct organism, produces dramatic physical response in terms of muscle hypertrophy. And that's what everyone was after, was what was visible. And that was the hope at the bottom of Pandora's box. And that's what got a lot of people hooked and kept them in it for the long term. But in the process of going going after what was at the bottom of the box, we were unknowingly reaping all these other benefits that only over time did we start to have some sense that there's a lot more to this than just getting big. There, there seemed to be more benefits and there seemed to be more impact in terms of body composition and health. And that became more and more evident over the years from the 1980s forward when the general populace, the wheels were just starting to fall off. Everyone was getting metabolic syndrome. Everyone was getting fatter and fatter. Those hidden benefits of strength training started to manifest themselves because the body composition changes that we were seeing could not simply be explained by caloric accounting. It could not just be the, act, the amount of activity you were doing relative to the amount you were eating. Something else was going on. And that's all those other things that were inside Pandora's box that we were bringing out through the process of trying to get bigger. And a lot of people, how big you're going to get in terms of muscle mass is really dependent upon the organism. That specific organism's genotype and genetic expression is going to determine the ceiling of how big they can get. And there are so many young men, and nowadays young women, that are pursuing a degree of muscle mass that they've seen in the magazines or on Instagram or the internet that they're never going to achieve, but they keep going after it. But in the process of doing so, they're reaping all these other benefits that they may not even be aware of or that they become aware of in the process of doing it. Mm -hmm. But also we should think that because of these other benefits that we're getting, uh, as opposed to just getting 
big and strong for a lot of my clients anyway, and, and this realization has been very useful, is to tell people, listen, just because you're not getting as big as you like and, and you're not looking like somebody that you idolize, that doesn't matter. The high-intensity exercise is doing so much more for you than just this idea of getting really big or reaching a certain level of hypertrophy. And as we, as we also heard from the rec conference, that size and strength aren't necessary completely literally correlated. So yeah. you can be getting very strong and not necessarily getting big. And again, the act of high intensity exercise has all these huge other health benefits. Right. And the ironic thing is, is the people that get really, really strong are the people that tend to not get very big. And the people that get very, very big are the people that get very modest strength improvements. I know. It's, it's annoying. <laughs> There's different mechanisms. Because I get strong. I don't get big. I think I'd rather give a little bit of that up. And the size increase is an improvement of last resort, which is kind of funny because it's the one thing that got us hooked into the whole process. But in terms of all the adaptive responses that are available from high-intensity training, it's only muscle size that is heavily negatively regulated. Yeah. So it's the only thing that really has a hard, hard ceiling put on it in terms of response. Over time, the most pleasurable clients to train turn out to be the ones that don't give a rat's ass about the hypertrophy issue. I agree. There are, you know, particularly if you have older clients, they are so appreciative of the benefits and the myriad of benefits that come from high intensity strength training because they can appreciate them because mm. you don't really realize those things are there until they go away. I don't know if you've ever had numbing drops put into your eye, but you never realize how much sensation there is around your eye and blinking and all of it until it's taken away. Yes, I've had that happen. It's crazy. And then when it comes back to you, you're just so amazed at um, it's like a fish in water. It's sort of like, this is water. It's like, what's water? <laughs> all of a sudden, you give back to these people all of these you know, functional health benefits that have gone away, and they can feel it. And the thing is, is if you have a client that's training high intensity, you know, muscle mass aside, just let's say we have a, you know, an older client that's training in your facility, Adam. If you pluck that client out, and drop them into the middle of a gate at the airport with 150, 200 people, and you and I stand together, and you ask me, Doug, which one of the people standing around here is my client? <laughs> I guarantee you I could point them out. Mm -hmm. They have a different appearance altogether. The way their body orients itself against gravity, the color of their skin, they, look, they don't stand out for any muscle mass reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there is a, a signaling of health that's unmistakable when, when you look at them. And I, I guarantee you I could pluck your client out of 150 people at an airport gate. You know, you just use the word signaling. That's a great entree into what I want to talk about with muscle. I don't think people realize that muscle is a signaling organ like the yeah. pancreas. And so let's talk about muscle as a signaling organ. And that's what leads to all these health benefits that we're talking about, what high-intensity exercise promotes, what it stimulates muscle to do. And there are some things that I just want to throw out there, like, you know, let's, I want to talk about myokines. 
myokines. I want to talk about the energy and protein metabolism characteristics of muscle. I want to talk about glucose uptake. I want to talk about the Simon Melov research. Sure. They've shown that exercise can actually reverse aging in human skeletal muscle. These are the things we're talking about here. Yeah. And the whole myokine issue is probably less than 10 years old. I can't remember where she's from. Some Scandinavian country, Bente K. Pedersen is the one that kind of coined the term and first discovered it. The notion of myokines is basically they're cytokines, chemical messengers that are released by exercising skeletal muscle, that it turns out that they operate in a signaling fashion, both within the muscle working, that's autocrine, to nearby muscles, that's paracrine, and then to other organs and tissues throughout the body, and that is endocrine. Uh, so it turns out that skeletal muscle is the largest and most powerful endocrine organ in the body. Guys like us, we always had a sense of that, that that was the whole, the benefits in terms of body composition seem so disproportionate to anything that could be accounted for simply by um, caloric energy balance or accounting issues. It was much greater than, than the sum. And I know you remember the discussion Ken H Hutchins had about discriminant weight loss and yep. talking about your body as a corporation that had a board of directors and you're in a calorie deficit. And in one scenario, you lose all tissues in your body at a calorie deficit. But if you add high intensity strength training, it will all be shunted towards discriminant fat loss because you can't get rid of skeletal muscle because you got a stimulus for more. You can't get rid of nervous tissue because the skeletal muscle that you're adding needs to be innervated. You can't get rid of bony tissue because the skeletal muscle you're adding has to be attached to that bone and you have to have more bone added on. And he made this case for how when you have a caloric deficit in the face of high intensity strength training, it would shunt shunt everything towards fat loss. And that was sort of beating around the bush of this whole myokine issue mm. is that hard work with skeletal muscle is doing so much to dictate how energy is utilized in the body, to dictate nutrient partitioning, to dictate enhanced glucose uptake and um, disposal out of the, out of the skeletal muscle to increase lipolysis and fatty acid breakdown to stimulate the change of adipose tissue from white energy storing inflammatory hormone releasing tissue into brown adipose tissue, which uncouples itself from the mitochondria and releases heat and contributes to improvements in body composition and loss of inflammatory fat. There's just so many things that are triggered when you do hard work. And is it necessary for it to be intense work as opposed to, let's say, just... No, not entirely. I mean, there, there are myokines that are released by lower levels of activity. And, and this is the difficult part with myokine research is, you know, when we're going to measure them, we don't know about the amplitude of their release and the time course of their release and whether certain myokines are triggered best by certain types of activities. So it may be that there are certain myokines that are released by lower intensity exercise that's carried out for longer periods of time. Certain types of exercise may cause a spike in a myokine release immediately after the exercise. In other cases, that spike may not occur 
for many hours later. We don't know whether we're sampling at the right slice and time relative to each different myokine. Perfect example of this is one of the first myokines that was discovered was interleukin-6. And under normal circumstances, interleukin-6 is released fairly steadily from the body and particularly from the adipose tissue. And it is known as a bad player. It is a very inflammatory cytokine and chronically elevated levels of interleukin-6 can actually lead to the development of cancers. So when we first started recognizing that cytokine release occurred with exercise, we were finding that interleukin-6, after high-intensity exercise, would spike like a thousand-fold immediately after a high-intensity exercise bout. And the immediate response was like, oh, no, this can't be good. I mean, this is a bad player, and we're spiking it a thousand-fold. We're going to make everyone sick, have heart attacks, and you know, inflame their blood vessels, give them cancer, fill in the blank. But what we came to find out was that those acute spikes in interleukin-6 ended up down-regulating the receptors for interleukin-6. So you had a lot fewer of the receptors, and over the longer span of time, your sustained serum interleukin-6 levels fell. It was like lowering your serum insulin levels. When you had those acute spikes, you ended up creating a circumstance where over the longer span of time, interleukin-6 levels and systemic inflammation was greatly blunted. So there's a lot of things that seemed counterintuitive that actually turned out to be beneficial by this whole myokine concept. So your gut feeling, however, is that myokine, myokines are good. <laughs> yeah. no, and I think it's as simple as this, and I kind of concluded the talk. So humans fall under, and you mentioned this in your email, the whole classification of living organisms mm. fall under King Philip came over for good sex is the mnemonic that I learned. And you had a one that was less offensive. But <laughs> Soup. <laughs> he probably went, to, he actually probably went for the sex. <laughs> one of the distinguishing characteristics of animals is movement. That is the, the key distinguishing feature of that kingdom. And movement is so important to us because for animals without movement, you can't get food. You can't keep from becoming food. It's as simple as that. And at the conclusion of the talk, I thought movement is life. That's basically all there is to it. If you want everything bad that can happen to a human to happen, immobilize them and overfeed them. Movement is life. And I believe strongly, based on the experience that you and I have had in this field, that movement against resistance is life elevated. It takes it to another, another level that is just much, much better. And I think it is really is as simple as that. And I do, for that reason, think that the discovery of myokines has been an amazing thing and that I believe that this chemical messaging is nature's way of saying movement is good, movement against resistance is even better. Yeah, well, amen. Let's talk about Simon Melov's work a little bit because is it hyperbole to say that high-intensity strength training can actually uh, reverse aging? Is that hyperbole? 
Nope. And he proved it. And I was, that research is at least 10 years old now. And I, like you, I know you do, just kind of every once in a while sit down with a laptop or get on the computer and just kind of plow through PubMed and see what's out there. And I just stumbled across the article and I love an article that gives you the answer in the title of the article. And it says, <laughs> resistance training reverses aging and skeletal muscle. That was the name of the article. I'm like, well, damn, I'm going to click on that one. It was truly astounding. They used a statistical technique called a false discovery rate to discover gene expression that was markedly different in advanced age than it was in youth. And they identified, I can't remember, as close to 200 different genes as candidates. And then they applied a 16-week strength training protocol to elderly subjects and measured their gene expression before and after. And what they found is at the conclusion of the study, the gene expression had reverted to the same type of gene expression that you saw in 25-year-olds in 16 weeks. And when you actually dig into the methods section of the paper and you look at the quality of strength training that was done compared to what you and I are used to seeing, it was pretty darn mediocre. Yet you had these results that were just completely astounding. You know, this was in mitochondrial DNA where they were looking at these genes, which is very well-preserved DNA. And it's also DNA that is integral to the cellular functioning of everything in the organisms. It's not just the icing, it's the sprinkles on top of the icing in terms of genetic expression. My immediate thought was, wow, this changes everything. I mean, our most ancient literature is about seeking the fountain of youth, and there it was. And you and I both know that what happened afterwards was nothing. Unbelievable. I, I thought, man, I'm gonna. We couldn't build facilities fast enough to to train clients. And no, the, you know, if there was a pill that would do that. Yeah, you remember how resveratrol flew off the shelves when that research came out, and that People showed drunk. like a 16 percent lifespan increase in flatworms. <laughs> and people were like spending big bucks buying it off the shelf, but we're talking about bona fide age reversal at the molecular cellular level in humans and nothing happened because what was required was to get off your ass and do hard work. And that was the difference. I mean, the kind of person that's willing to get up, go out, pay good money for someone to make them work really hard and be uncomfortable um, to reap the benefits, that's just a different kind of person. And that's, you know, I'm I'm okay with that being a minority population. I wish it would be more, but it's a special kind of person. And that's why I love training clients, you know. And you see it. day in, As an emergency room physician, you must see the, the, the problems associated with loss of strength. Yeah, it's, me and my wife were talking about this today before the podcast. And because we went through a Starbucks today. We, we had to run some errands and we went through a Starbucks. She always gets this white peach tea that's unsweetened. She likes it. So we went to order it today and lo and behold, it comes through the door and it's sweetened. So we're like, tap on the window at the drive-thru and it's like, eh, we said unsweetened. You gave us sweetened. And they're like, oh, we're sorry. Starbucks has changed the formulation. It only comes sweetened now. It's 
brewed into the bag and that's the way it is. And we were leaving, you know, we got an alternative. We were leaving. I'm just gonna, I said, Wendy, I really do think it, it almost borders on conspiracy theory that every big entity out there seems determined to force feed us the shit that's going to make us sick. That's going to make us fat and with metabolic syndrome and cancer and diseases, because I really do think there's just so much profit in people being sick that that's what we're getting. The fact that we had corn and grain subsidies back in the Great Depression and that we couldn't just unwind those. Now it's a requirement that we have 10% ethanol in our gasoline so that we can continue to propagate those grain subsidies. And the fact that we have to have 10% gasoline in our gas tanks is probably a major driving reason why the vast majority of population in this country has been turned into human grain disposal machinery. Oh, wow. And we're just sicker than hell. And I mean, when I go to work, I mean, I can't even begin to describe to you how sick and deconditioned people are. It is rare for me to pick up a patient that has less than 30 medications. Jesus. It is rare for me to pick up a patient that has not been at the ER or in the hospital within the past two weeks. It's just a revolving door. I went from especially where I could like, you know, make major turnaround on people and major saves. And now it's just a revolving door of trying to put the wheels back on and then they fall back off and come back really, really slid on our overall health status. Uh, this reminds me of when my dad was in the hospital. He had heart failure a few years ago, and uh, we've covered this on a previous podcast, but when he was there, he was diabetic, and the special diabetic menu had all sorts of, I mean, like incredibly high levels of carbohydrates on the special diabetic menu. There was pasta and even bread. They were like the like, and I asked to see the nutritionist, and I said, uh, "I said, what's uh?" You, he just ordered two grilled cheese sandwiches, and she goes, "What do you do? You have a problem with the cheese?" And I said, <laughs> "I said no." <laughs> I, I, this is the this is the clinical dietitian in the in the hospital, and I was. I was like, oh, my God, I printed it out. I took a picture of it. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is the special diabetic menu at, at a hospital for someone who's recovering from a, a fem-pop a bypass surgery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is mind-blowing. You know, I operate on the two ends of the spectrum. My whole life is a barbell, including my interaction with humans. It's a barbell strategy where on one end, I got the sickest of the sick. Um, and on the other end, I got my clients. And the, the disparity between the two is just so astounding that you know the cognitive dissonance every day when i go to work and do what i do is just unbelievable sometimes yeah well you when we were talking in person at the conference you and i were talking about exactly yeah. this and uh yeah your wife works in an icu does she not or she did she she did work in icu yes and she yeah. has experienced similar things and now she's working in, in oncology speaking of what mike just talked about being fed grilled cheese uh, from a diabetic menu. It also amazes me how little the cancer doctors are, are talking about nutrition to their oncology patients. It's like yeah. pretty much non-existent. And this is like a high-end oncology group. Those, those conversations frustrate me to no, to no end. I got a weird story, and this is not science. This is purely anecdote. Had a client, you know, my place has been open for more than 20 years now, had a client that had, you know, just out of the blue, had a seizure. Part of the workup 
got a CT scan. It's actually one of my partners diagnosed her with an astrocytoma of the brain, highly malignant brain tumor. And this was probably early 2000s, just when the whole low-carb ketogenic thing was kind of taken off. But I knew there was some literature on ketogenic diets in relation to brain cancer and to seizure disorders and things like that. Just made the suggestion. She latched onto it. And over the course of a year or 18 months, the tumor shrunk and then became undetectable. But they went ahead. They recommended that she still go through some chemo and radiation therapy, had a lot of radiation therapy, actually developed some mild dementia as a consequence of the radiation. She had a fall and had a laceration about a week ago. And I ended up seeing her in the ER, but still alive, still no return of tumor. This just gets to the whole oncology discussion that we're not talking about, you know, ketogenic diets, carbohydrate restriction, the things that might be driving cancer metabolism. And the other thing is, is using diet and high intensity exercise as adjuvant therapy to chemotherapy and more traditional treatments, I think should start to become a standard of care. I mean, they can show that interleukin-15, which is one of the major myokines released that inhibits myostatin, promotes muscle growth, but also has been shown in vitro and in vivo, that means in the test tube and in the animal, to actively arrest growth and kill breast cancer cells. So, I mean, there's a strong argument to be made for high-intensity exercise as adjunct therapy to chemotherapy. I do have an oncologist that in the will occasionally send me clients pre-chemo just to kind of build up their muscle mass um, and their strength to give them a higher ceiling to start from when they start doing chemo. But there's not really been any discussion yet of the potential anti-neoplastic effects of this myokine release and, and what it could mean. Myokine release through high-intensity exercise, which doesn't take a lot of time to do. Yeah. And think about it. And some good nutrition, this carbohydrate restriction. I mean, we, this stuff is in our control. Right. It's so within our control. We don't have to. Really, in terms of moving the needle on doing anything beneficial, the things that are within our control move the needle a hell of a lot more than the medication regimens. I mean, if they could get the kind of percentage benefit that's documented by those sort of interventions in a pill, mm. drug manufacturer would just like go completely bonkers over something of that efficacy. I agree. Well, we got to wrap it up now, but let's yeah. end on that. That says it all. I mean, if, if you're not motivated to, you know, based on all this stuff that we're finding out to, to start doing some high intensity exercise, get moving uh, and, and maybe pay attention to your nutrition, then, then I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. The time commitment for it, it'd be one thing, but the time commitment is just so minimal. And the reward relative to the time is hugely disproportionate. It's just a win-win, you know? Yeah. Big bang for your buck. Right. I don't know. Doug's, uh, he's happy to be a part of the minority, though. Yeah. <laughs> <There's> a... <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Doug. I really appreciate it. It's a fun talk. All right. Thank you. This has been the Inform Fitness Podcast with Adam Zickerman. For over 20 years, Inform Fitness has been providing clients of all ages with customized personal training designed to build strength fast. Visit informfitness.com for testimonials, blogs, and videos on the three pillars, exercise, nutrition, and recovery.